trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. We are off and running in the second hour of the show. By the way, if you would like to join the conversation, do so at 801-331-8113. I got to give a shout out to my daughter. My oldest daughter, Mason, is uh, is such a talented artist. And uh, she and her husband and our little grandson, James, were visiting us for the uh, Independence Day holiday. And that was great. So th- this sounds like a brag. I, I'm, I'm really trying to brag on her, but I was thoroughly enjoying our visit with them. I asked her at one point, could you help me design a logo for this program? And I got to give her credit. She came up with what I think is the most iconic and brilliant logo that, that she could have possibly come up with. And you can you can check this out for yourself. You can go to my Facebook page. You can uh, go to uh, go to uh, the Brian Hyde show. I think you'll you'll be able to find it if you just Google it. It's it's really brilliant. Anyway, I know it says, are you bragging about yourself? No, I'm bragging about my daughter, but I just I'm so impressed. I love people who have artistic ability. I have none, but I have the deepest respect for those who do. And uh, I just, I thought she, she, she captured me. She captured me all too well. You'll have to take a look at it and see what I'm talking about. But moving on, we have much to discuss this hour. First of all, I hope you had a great uh, Memorial Day. No, that was a month ago. How about a great Independence Day weekend? I watched the president's speech at Mount Rushmore. This is not something that I would typically do. I, you know, I, I don't get goo-goo over the idea of I'm going to go to a Trump rally. But I really wanted to hear what the president had to say, in part because there was such a fervor and such a protest. How dare the president go and, and honor this, this monument, which features two slave owners while he's standing on ground taken from Native Americans yeah, the media really went there. That was, uh, that was I think, where they went off into the weeds and, and stopped even pretending like there's anything resembling objectivity in their reporting. And I was not disappointed with his speech. I actually thought he did a very good job of highlighting the things that are worth celebrating about America. Now, as I mentioned in the last hour, you know, the, the flybys and the, you know, the symbols of, of the power of our government they don't impress me like they used to, but it's still kind of a neat thing to see. You know, you don't get to see jets and helicopters flying by every day. So, you know, much respect to those who serve. But I, the Zoom wows don't have quite the effect on me that they once did. I wanted to hear what does this man have to say about our country? And I thought he absolutely had a, a, a great message. No cheap shots at Joe Biden. No cheap shots at the Democrats. He definitely called out those who were telling us that everything that came before us was wrong and we need to reject it as quickly as possible and submit to whatever we're being told. Well, apparently they didn't like that. Here's the thing that gets me, though. You you don't have to be, uh, you know, MAGA hat wearing, you know, Trump, you know, supporter out there championing Donald Trump. I know people who are like that. You probably do as well. And hey, you know, good for them. That's that's their choice. 
But to get some real, honest-to-goodness, I mean authentic hostility in your direction, all you have to do is not say something derogatory about him. And that's enough. And, and I give the example, I have, I have a dear friend who I met some years ago in participating in a TEDx event down in St. George. And this is a woman who has been a nurse for most of her adult life. She has traveled the world. She worked with Mother Teresa and just has a, a marvelous love of humanity. And, and just, I love how uplifting her messages are. When she posts on Facebook, there's usually something really special about it. I've shared some of her comments on here in the last week or so. And this was the post that she put up on July 4th. She said, although I never post about politics on Facebook, and she's right, she doesn't. She says, I'm making an exception tonight. Our America's 244th Independence Day. Just for once, she says, you may want to read another point of view besides all the mainstream media hate. She says, I pray for President Trump and our country. I'm amazed at his endless tenacity. And please, I have no interest in reading any hateful comments. I see enough of that all day long. And yes, she said, CNN has already removed the video at the very end. Now, that's a pretty innocuous post, right? I mean, does, does that sound like somebody thumping their chest and telling you that uh, if you aren't wearing your MAGA hat, you know, you're somehow less than human? Because I don't get any of that. And again, I want to vouch for the fact she is a very non-politically driven person. Much more driven by a love of humanity and, and uh, a life of service. And I'm just I'm so proud to know her. This was the post I saw earlier this morning. She said, I just noticed that 15 people have unfriended me since I posted July 4th about 24 hours ago. Sad to see such a vicious and intolerant world. Now, she's not making herself out to be a victim here. She's just observing something which I think most of us have witnessed in our own lives and maybe in our own social media feeds. How is it? That you can bring hostility raining down upon you simply by having a different point of view for what you're being told is the imperative. In this case, uh, you know, dissenting from the uh, MSM point of view, which is, uh, in a word, orange man, bad. I really, I, I don't like what I'm seeing. And, and I hope I'm not contributing to it. I know, you know, I'm, I'm disgusted in many ways, with what our press has become. They've gone from being lapdogs and enablers of uh, people in power, thinking that, uh, you know, well, of course, we associate with them, therefore we are part of the government. We are the, you know, we are the fourth branch of government. No, you're not. What they've become is a very open propaganda wing, and a dangerous one at that. The same kind of propaganda wing that would sit there and tell us that, well, you know, protests uh, may contribute to the spread of coronavirus, depending on what you're protesting. Can somebody translate that for me? Can someone help me make sense out of what do you mean, depending on what you're protesting? So, in other words, if you're protesting in favor of limiting government's power over you or being able to fully exercise your freedoms or enjoy protection from government predation, that's dangerous, or so they tell us. At every gathering that took place, you know, where, where people were coming together saying, enough, it is time to reopen society, it is time for government to take its boot off the back of our necks and stop trying to, to micromanage everything in the name of a virus, which they cannot stop. That's considered dangerous. 
Why, we'll just, I'm sure we're going to see a huge surge. On the other hand, thousands and thousands of people come out and protest against the founding ideals of liberty, individual responsibility. They protest in favor of collectivism, including thought control, including bullying and, and, and group identity politics, which is tribalism at its absolute worst. That apparently is a blessed activity. That is considered healthy and, well, of course, our research says that that does not contribute to the spread of coronavirus. And it may sound like we're, we're just quibbling over, you know, meaning of words here, but I, I think it was Eric Mutzos who said, how is it the coronavirus became so smart? How does it know to only go after and infect the people who are standing up for things like limited government, like liberty, like personal responsibility, free markets, etc.? But it stays away from those who are protesting the causes of social justice and and inequality and, and racism and everything that came before us. There's a really indelicate way to say this, and I'm not going to say it, but let's just say I could fertilize my garden well with what uh, is being shoveled our direction by so much of the mainstream media. And the fact that they can do it without any sense of, of, of how hypocritical they're being with the tone deafness of why won't you listen? Why won't you take us serious? And when the president calls them out on it, well, he's just being divisive. All right. I'm getting myself a little bit worked up here. That's not what I want to do. I don't want to leave you feeling angry or feeling like, oh, yeah, you're right. We are at the, you know, we're at the mercy of a bunch of people who don't want what's best for us. I think it's safe to say there is opposition, and I mean serious, organized opposition to free markets, to personal conscience, to personal liberty, to private property. Through the course of this hour, we're going to talk about a few of the things you and I could be doing about that. We're going to start with uh, exploring where is the line between being a responsible citizen and the need to exercise civil disobedience in defense of one's faith. I've got a great essay from Dr. Gavin Ashton. We'll come up with that here in just a few moments and talk about it. Jeffrey Tucker has a terrific essay on what have been the positive aspects of this crisis. And if you're very serious about being a critical thinker, a well-rounded human being, we'll talk about the value of a liberal arts education. Stick around. This is all straight ahead right here. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to join the conversation. This is kind of a, a touchy subject, only because, uh, let's just say, religion is, uh, well, it's very close to people's hearts. And when you start getting to, uh, hey, you know, how far are you willing to go to defend your freedom of conscience, your freedom to worship? There's going to be a different answer from just about everybody. There's a terrific essay. This is by Dr. Gavin Ashton. And it asks some pretty interesting questions regarding the state closure of churches and civil disobedience. He says the state and church have a history in our country. That relationship status might read, it's complicated. It ranges from the conversion and Christianization of the state to the deepest antipathy of the state and its persecution of the church. Even when Christian, 
the church has to challenge the state. Becket took on Henry II and won. It cost him his life, but he won. Thomas More took on Henry VIII. It cost him his life. While he won the moral argument, he lost the legal and political one. Ashton says the narrative in this country is, of course, set in the far wider, more complex contest for a system of values fought in a variety of states with a variety of aspects of the church. Glancing from the dynamics of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar through the Maccabees up to Bonhoeffer and Hitler, Solzhenitsyn and Stalin, the contest for setting the values by which human beings live across states and cultures defines one of the most powerful narratives in human history. Boy, I'll tell you, the contrast just between those names, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, the Maccabees, if you're not familiar with, uh, with, uh, the, with Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Hitler, Solzhenitsyn and Stalin, amazing. And that pendulum, says Dr. Ashton, swings from benign to malign. I think we're seeing a similar swing right now in our time. He says, in our day, we are moving with some speed towards the malign. Any reading of 20C history, 20th century, sorry, the abbreviation escaped me for a moment, demonstrates a three-cornered fight between two totalitarian ambitions, Marxism and fascism and Christianity. All three make absolutist claims on humanity that are irreconcilable. The anemic relativism of our decaying culture in the West disguises the sharp and brutal quality of the contest. Now, he says Christians are rightly wary that in the 21st century, there's no reason for thinking that the contest has been suspended. Fascism's toll of Christians and Jews in Germany and Spain was horrendous, but dwarfed by the toll wreaked by the Soviet Union and Marxist China. In each period of attrition, the sign that the struggle to the death had begun was the control of churches and worship by the authorities. Did you feel a little chill go up your spine? As you acknowledge that? All right. We'll continue on. Dr. Ashton says the beginning of this century has exposed the oncoming depth and intensity of a cultural revolution of values that are inimical to the faith in the West and suddenly out of nowhere. For medical rather than political reasons, the state suddenly closes the churches and prohibits worship. Now, he says there are three patterns of Christian response. The first is the highly secularized and spiritually incompetent one, which says places don't don't matter. Your private thoughts are everything. Corporate worship is overrated. We're not worrying about the implications for a weakened church losing financial and philosophical traction, becoming ever more bankrupt in both. There's nothing to see here. Move on. Don't fuss. He says the second but more literate response historically but still underdeveloped spiritually, says, yes, it's a terrible sign that the churches have been taken down unilaterally. Yes, it looks authoritarian and apocalyptic, but check out the facts. It was a pandemic. It was medicine and science, not politics. Calm down. Nothing to worry about. The third group is more inclined to the view, if it walks like a duck, looks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it may well be a duck. He says there's no value-free science. Everything has a political dimension. More importantly, everything has a spiritual temperature, character, and metaphysical flavor or dynamic. Whether there was intentionality or not, the state took upon itself the right to close churches, prohibit worship, and deny the autonomy of personal choice and informed conscience. And although this was a temporary measure, it seems, 
It set a precedent which should have been exposed, challenged, and repudiated. He says, this is not the place to argue that the science on singing, water droplets, and infection is contested, as is the nature of the virus itself. But it is the place to make common cause with Lord Sumption and vociferously claim that civil liberties require us to make a distinction between those who want to withdraw from public life in order to protect themselves in a situation that's scientifically and medically ambiguous, and those who choose to take certain risks congruent with the personal value system and the dictates of their conscience. It is the place to say that Christians do not recognize the power or authority of the state to prohibit gathering for worship in ways that are not medically or scientifically lethal or antisocial. It is the place for insisting that the bar the state has to cross to outlaw worship, close churches, and outrage Christian conscience is considerably, perhaps impossibly, higher than the secular state recognizes. And so Dr. Gavin Ashton says, it is therefore a legal and moral duty for the church to challenge the jurisprudential and ethical authority of the state to have set a precedent in the authoritarian closing of churches and prohibition of worship. It is for this reason that Christian concern and a number of church leaders, amongst whom he says, I am the least, have issued a challenge to the government by means of judicial review to test the legality of this program of church closure. Further, he says, if the legal challenge should be lost, many of us believe that Christians could argue that we had a moral and ethical duty to refuse to acknowledge the legitimacy of unjust law that not only acted as a threat to civil rights and liberties that our forebears fought so hard to defend, but also struck at the heart of our religious, spiritual, and moral allegiance and identity. Now, I believe he is writing this from Great Britain. But I think the principle still applies. I think this is one of those things that would be true in any time or any place. And without putting you on the spot, look, I'm not trying to get you in any trouble. I don't want you to, you know, have to, you know, answer to your church authorities for well, what exactly are you out there stirring up trouble for. But where do you draw the line? And that's not a rhetorical question. 801-331-8113. Where would you draw the line if your freedom of conscience were clearly being contested by the state? No matter what the state's dictate is, you know, well, we're just trying to do what we have to do. I seem to remember in uh, implementing the final solution in the Third Reich, that was the mantra they kept telling themselves. We did what we had to do. Hurting people into boxcars, taking them off to camps, shepherding them into the showers burning their remains in the ovens. We just did what we had to do. And it was all legal and proper, and they had the paperwork to show such. But it was still wrong. I think I was reading today, it was 75 years ago today, that Otto Frank and Frank's father shepherded his family. Um, maybe, was it today he got out of the hiding place? I can't remember now. I'll have to look it up. But uh, I'm invoking Anne Frank as just evidence that the law-abiding citizens were the ones who were hunting her family and her and wanted to put them in the camps, which they actually did, and only her father survived. The lawbreakers were the good people who hid them and kept them hidden from the authorities. To the phone. Caller, welcome to the show. Thank you. Is that me? Yes. Go ahead. It is. It is. Okay. Um, since when do... Um you know, either our representatives or dictators, when when do they know everything? I mean, we know even science is wrong. Look at this coronavirus. 
look at the mixed messages we have gotten about the ever-changing facts. <laughs> you know, uh, um, but I don't, I don't need to go in that. We all, all know how wrong they've been about the, the uh, six million deaths, you know, and when has the hospitals been, you know, past, ca- ca- you know, capacity? They Ray, Ray, I'm going to have you hang on. We'll get to you the other side of the break, but we've got to pay a couple of bills here. Stay with me. is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Once again, thanks for hanging with us. Let's go back to Ray. Ray, thank you for staying with me through the break. Tell me what's on your mind. Okay, yes. Thank you for having me. Um, so, So with this coronavirus... We have seen fear swept through the United States and the world. Oh, without and a doubt. Now, uh, no question. Well, the opposite of fear is faith. You know, and faith is dead without works, John tells us at the back of the Book of Mor- I mean, back of the uh, Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, faith is not superstition. Faith is when we act upon our beliefs. Faith is a verb. Okay? So, so... You know, faith without works is dead. Justice without mercy is dead. And agency without responsibility is dead. So, so we all need a support system. We know how valuable the AAA is. And, you know, or counseling, group therapy. But religion is a community support system. You know, our human needs. We need a support system. Family is a support system. You know, this whole thing about... You know, um, the jun- the um, community, the um, jungle. What am I looking for here? The tribe, you know, support system. Well, well, you know, the, the thing is, why can people demonstrate and there's no action? Why, why can they go into liquor stores, you know, um, have abortions? I mean, on and on. But they want to close down. You know, churches, which is a proven human need for, for mental health. Oh, I agree. You know, I, I, I mean, we're, we're self-government of the people, by the people, for the people. We can, we can social distance. We don't have to sit next to another family in church. You know, we, we have reason. We, we, we have self-government. When these leaders think to take away our right to to work well and they're doing it in the name of we're just protecting you and i think to to what ammon bundy was doing back around easter time and boy the the criticism he caught the the anger that was directed at him you know you're just going to get people sick i'm not aware of a single person who became sick or otherwise was was you know negatively impacted by that ray thank you so much for your call one thing that that comes to mind here with the the idea that uh, you know well you know the churches are being told you can't meet or you can only meet under these circumstances and you know I think in California they outlawed singing because somebody might spit when they sing I I don't know it seems like a big overreach on the part of of state authority 
But I see a lot of people nonetheless bend the knee and, well, okay, but we have to do it because that's part of being a good citizen. And and I'm not here to tell you what your conscience should be saying, but I will tell you this. If your conscience says, I cannot do that, or I have to speak up, or I have to, I have to do, you know, this, which goes against the grain, I will defend you. I will stand with you. Even if we don't necessarily agree on the same thing, it's important enough that that voice of conscience not be silenced. Because the easier it gets to silence it, the easier it gets to just, well, you know, don't make waves, just kind of, you know, go along. The harder it is down the road to make the necessary course corrections that we're going to have to make. I mean, we're look, people get upset sometimes. How dare you compare what's going on here with, you know, uh, Stalinist Russia or, you know, Nazi Germany or Maoist China. We don't have to be fully in the throes of the Third Reich or under the uh, the Soviet rule or we don't have to be in the cultural revolution that Mao put forth to see that we're headed in a similar direction. To see that we're headed somewhere where personal rights are being abridged and diminished and power and control over all of us is being expanded. The right thing to do is to speak up, but I'll be the first to admit it's scary. Like I was mentioning my friend, uh, Cheryl, all she did is posted a simple story with a very simple opinion, a very non-offensive opinion and right and left. People are unfriending her. Well, that's enough that I just can't do this. I don't know where this mentality comes from. We have to punish one another. And don't get me started on, you know, the, the whole masks thing, because that's that goes both ways. Some people want to punish those who are wearing masks. Others want to punish those who who aren't wearing masks. We've got a very unhealthy obsession with controlling each other right now. That's the bad news. You want to hear some good news? OK, I will share with you some good news. Uh, Jeffrey Tucker. Very positive guy, writes for the American Institute for Economic Research, asks the question. What good comes from this tragedy? Maybe you've been asking yourself about this, too. What possible good has come from what we have been through for the last few months? And it's been hard. I don't I can't I can't think of a single person who has said, actually, this was exhilarating and a great improvement on how my life was before. No one I know has said anything resembling that. But I've talked to a lot of people who are, are going through various stages of grief and depression and suffering because of being deprived of human company or deprived of employment, um, it's, it's a difficult and sad situation. Jeff Tucker says many millions of people have spent the last four months in sadness and depression. And he says it's hard to watch the world shattered by the bad behavior of governments and to see too many of us, too many among us rather, cheer the destruction and not feel a sense of despair. And yet the human mind is also an incredible thing. If we work at it, we can figure out a good takeaway from terrible events. Now, he says doing so, it takes effort, can brighten the spirits and point the way forward out of the morass. So here are three positive experiences or three positives he's taken out of this experience. First of all, he says, I am completely over my decades old addiction to news. He says, I always loved the news. Even when I was a kid for years, I read the Washington Post with my morning coffee. Then I switched to the New York Times and learned how to tease truth out of their biased but comprehensive coverage. Then I added the Wall Street Journal. When home assistance came along, I programmed mine to play eight hours, if I needed it, of nonstop news. BBC, NPR, NYT, and so many others. It felt like such a luxury. 
But he says a turning point came for me on February 28th, 2020, when the New York Times podcast, which used to be my favorite, sent out a piece of panic porn that predicted the coronavirus would kill 8.25 million Americans or six of your friends. And he says it came as a shock suddenly to realize that they had turned over their main podcast to whipping up a public fear to back a lockdown explicitly. This was the agenda. They more or less admitted it. And he says, I knew at that moment that the paper had signed up to contribute to a malicious plot to enact an unprecedented social slash political experiment. The Times led the way. And he says, pretty soon the mainstream media became universally pro-lockdown, probably for political reasons. A widespread and mild virus, dangerous mostly to a particular demographic with low life expectancy and nearly harmless to everyone else, was rendered daily and hourly as a new bubonic plague. So he says, I might have listened for a couple more days, but then I stopped and the scales fell from my eyes. I decided suddenly and shockingly for me to stop filling my head with nonsense. The news was not getting me information to help me understand the world. It was clouding my ability to think clearly. A few months later, like clockwork, the revolution at the New York Times was complete when its opinion editor, hired to diversify the opinions in the paper, was unceremoniously fired for diversifying opinion in the paper. So he says, I started getting my information by digging for it, finding reliable accounts on Twitter to follow, spending my time on statistical pages, and otherwise finding facts, reading history, and educating myself more deeply, rather than just trust the media. Now, there is one exception here, and by the way, uh, my dear friend Carl, the C-Train, would back me up on this, the Wall Street Journal. Jeff Tucker says, the Wall Street Journal performed heroically throughout. But he says, at this point, I can say that I'm never going back. My addiction to the news is over, and I'm better off for it. It was painful, but he says, I'm glad. And some readers are now saying it's about time. The news has always been about getting eyes and ears and selling advertising. It's just entertainment. And it became especially true with the 24-hour news cycle. Jeff Tucker says, I don't disagree. I should have given it up years ago. Even now, I can immediately tell the difference between a person who watches TV news or who listens to mainstream radio versus those who are actually informed about what's going on. In any case, he says, I count this as a real victory, courtesy of the lockdown. Second, he says, I've saved a tremendous amount of money not going to bars, restaurants, and movies. Now, he says, I'm sad for all the places that have closed. It's unjust and evil. But from my own perspective, I learned how to live a good life while spending probably 30% less than I did before. I've fallen back in love with cooking, homespun cocktails, and reading. He says, it's all to the good. I doubt that I will go back now that I can make all my favorite meals at a fraction of the price I used to pay. Now that things are opening, I will perhaps make my way out to some restaurants. But he says, I doubt I will ever go back to the way things were before. Third, he says, I've learned a highly valuable lesson that civilization can be dismantled in a matter of months. It can happen again if there are not passionate voices out there who understand its basis and can defend it with intellectual integrity, facts, and rhetorical power. There's more to this article, but I want you to read it for yourself. I'll include it in the show notes, which you can find at lovingliberty.net. We'll be back after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back. I really, uh, I really enjoyed Jeff Tucker's uh, What Good Came Out of This Crisis or Out of This Tragedy. It is a really uplifting thing, and you don't have to engage in mental gymnastics. You don't have to be in denial. Everything is fine as the house is burning down around you. But it will help you uh, to recognize that even when stuff is, is out of your control and things are not going as you wish they were, there's a lot that you can do that, that still can maintain something positive. Uh, one excerpt here I wanted to share with you from his essay. He says that third lesson, the realization that uh, you know our civilization could be dismantled in a matter of months, he says it, it's caused him to be grateful for our liberties as well as our civilization and to never think that they can be taken for granted. That's the most valuable thing of all. He says, I'm thinking that in my, I'm thinking too, that my experience in learning these lessons is not unique. He says, I suspect that many intelligent people have lost, lost faith in the news, rediscovered frugality and found a new way to commit themselves to the defense of liberty and human rights. And I think he rightly warns in the coming days, we are going to need stronger and smarter minds to fight the battles of the future. And this may just be the preparation we need to make sure that truth and freedom eventually prevail. This is a beautiful segue into what I would like to share with you next. And that is the value of becoming a more well-rounded human being, as well as a better citizen, a better thinker, someone who is better equipped to be part of the solution. Here's what prompts me to say this, because I'm not holding myself up as any kind of an example, but... Would you rather be known as the person who can just stand there and complain and accuse from the sidelines and point out the problems over and over? We all know people who are like that, right? I think we have a name for them. Karen, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> However, how would you rather be the kind of person who, instead of sitting there swatting at symptoms with anger and frustration calmly zeroes in on the principle that is at the root of the problem and can actually formulate and offer workable solutions. Okay, here's the advantage of becoming a well-rounded, educated, critical-thinking person. Now, you do not have to go get an advanced degree in this. You don't have to get your Juris Doctorate in order to do this. You just have to be willing to pay the price to learn how to build your brain and your thinking power. People have been doing this throughout human history. There's not some secret lab, you know, where all the secrets are revealed to you, you know, upon your initiation. It's just a willingness to attend the hardest school. Which leads me to a commentary from my friend, Dr. Shannon Brooks. He is the founder of Monticello College and one of my former mentors in getting a liberal arts education. Now, if the word liberal arts really throws you, ah, what are you talking about? That's a useless study of old stuff that has no bearing. I couldn't disagree more strenuously. A liberal arts education actually will open your mind up to possibilities you had not considered before because it encourages you to be exposed to the great ideas that have flowed throughout human history, part of that great conversation, as mankind has wrestled with ideas and concepts and issues and principles all the way along. Now, here's the downside. There is no quick fix. Shannon Brooks says, The boomer and Gen Xer generation search for the quick fix has done much to cripple the millennial and homeland generations, who I fear have weak mooring in the ancient bulwark of principle. 
He says the older generations have taught them to desire things from an entitlement perspective, which is always prefaced with an I deserve or you deserve without regard to the hard work and sacrifice it takes to achieve them. No, he says, we will continue to demand today with no effort that for which our grandparents spent a lifetime living to acquire and never securing the knowledge that they possess. That the joy is not in the getting, but in the living towards. He says, in education, not schooling, mind you, we make huge strides in the direction of entering on the path of becoming true liberal artists, only to be sucked out to sea with the tsunami undertow of public opinion and fear of pain. But he says, the truth is, unless we can resolve to just be honest with ourselves, our attempts at liber education will end up in little more than slightly higher mediocrity. There's a price to pay to get a superb leadership education. And in our day, everyone seems bent on finding a shortcut. I want to take just a moment here to talk about that word liber. If you were to go back to ancient Greece or to ancient Rome, that was a word that was understood. Liber, you might recognize, is the root for library or liberty. Uh, in Spanish, libra is book. It denoted the difference between those who were able to read, to write, to do math, to engage in contract. Those who were educated. They were the ones who were uh, part of the, the upper tier of society. Not necessarily politically, but they were capable of engaging in commerce and basically charting their own destiny. Would you care to guess what the rest of society was? Those who were unable to, uh, to join the ranks of the liber? If you said slaves, you'd be absolutely correct. And there's a similar mindset at play in our society today. Without putting too fine a point on it and without triggering too many people, I wonder, are you comparing slavery to, to the way people are today? But ask yourself, how many people do you know who go to school, they get a degree, they want to get a job, but their goal is simply, I want to work for somebody else. I want the, the comfort and the security of a steady paycheck being someone else's employee. Let somebody else make the hard decisions. Let somebody else take the risk of building a business. I just want someone to take care of me, and in return, I will sell myself, sell my labor, sell my time to help them become wealthy or to help them grow their business. Now, I'm not saying that this is a bad thing, but I want you to contrast that with the mindset that goes with being an entrepreneur. Willing to take risks, willing to put yourself out there, willing to be capable of failing. One of those things represents the mindset of a liber individual. The other represents the mindset of someone who's more comfortable with a type of slavery, whether it's wage slavery, you know, it, it, it will we'll not quibble over the, the meaning of the words there, but you get the point. Shannon Brooks says acquiring a liberal arts education is likely to be the most difficult and painful thing you have ever attempted in your entire existence. It impacts every aspect of your domestic, religious and professional life. If you're alone in this endeavor, you will be chastised, ridiculed, gossiped about, made fun of, and left out. You will spend hours upon hours in solitude studying books that nobody you know has ever heard of. And people will say, well, while I admire your effort, what kind of job can you get with that? But it gets worse. 
First, if you are unfortunate enough to have a group to study with, then the going gets really rough. Whenever two or more people get together to study without a world-class liberal arts mentor to gain a liberal arts education, it's nearly always a failure before it begins. Immediately, they start to make it easier by distributing the workload, dividing up the reading between themselves so they can share the experience. That's anathema to true learning in most cases. He says it's like trying to build muscle mass on your own body by having one person work on their legs, another on their biceps, and so on. It might be a great workout, but you gain little from the experience. Second, he said it is so tempting to find anything claiming to be connected with Thomas Jefferson education and just adopt it as the real thing. It often costs less and it always requires less. The easier the better seems to be our national motto. And he says we're tempted to apply it to our education just like every other aspect of modern life. After hearing great mentors promote superb but gut-wrenching hard education, we are so relieved when someone comes along with the quick-fixed, shortcut version. Third, he says, if you particularly are working with youth, you will naturally begin to look for ways to streamline and mainstream the curriculum, easing youth into the educational process. Now, we do this so we can impact more youth and help them improve their minds. But this is a little like watering down the Kool-Aid so everybody can have some. Yeah, they all get a drink, but nobody knows what loony lime truly tastes like. He says, remember, we do, this with, we do all of this with the best intentions, with vigorous efforts to ensure balance and good feelings all around. But at the sacrifice of sound principles of extremely hard work, missed games and parties, nights crying in frustration, and mornings dawning with new and solid realization and resolve. This protected, take-the-hardness-out approach to education, especially applied to a, acquiring a liberal arts education, results in the natural consequences as summarized by Ralph Waldo Emerson in the 1840s. If young men miscarry in their first enterprises, they lose all heart. If the young merchant fails, men say he is ruined. If the finest genius studies at one of our colleges and is not installed in an office within one year afterwards in the cities or suburbs of Boston or New York... It seems to his friends and to himself that he is right in being disheartened and complaining the rest of his life. Now, there's more to this quote. I'm not going to have time to go through it all. I will post this article in the show notes. The bottom line is we don't need it easier. And if you are serious about being a thinking, contributing member of society, there's no high road. There is no shortcut. Pay the price. Read what the greatest minds in Western civilization have had to say. And then take your place among them. This is The Brian Hyde Show.